Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business. Come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hi and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this week's episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Leah Hunter. Leah has got over 25 years experience in the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical industry. She is a clinical research associate and lead. She does project management. Leah and her team will make sure the end-to-end process of your clinical research trial runs smoothly, is compliant and meets all those ethical standards. Leah shares of us how she got into the industry. She gives us a bit of insight in what she does for those of us that may be unaware of what clinical research involves. She shares of us the impact on COVID in relation to conducting clinical trials, gives us a bit of a history lesson regarding engaging certain sectors of the community and hesitancy and gives a really good example around the syphilis case and ethical standards. So it's really, really interesting for those of you that may not be aware. Leah shares with us how she's building her team as her business grows and alongside that how she is protecting her mental health, her physical health and her well-being. I absolutely loved it. If you like this episode, please do share it and I'll see you the next episode. Hey, Leah, thank you so much for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Tara. My pleasure, my pleasure. So would you be able to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and what you do today? Yeah, I uh, started my career as a chemist. Um, I was working on a medicinal, as a medicinal chemist for about four years. And then I decided that I wanted to explore more research um, avenues. So I went and did a PhD in London at Queen Mary's Westfield College and really, really enjoyed research. And I met the most wonderful professor who just taught me everything I know, basically, about a very specialist area called photodynamic therapy. And his name was Professor Bonnet. And uh, I think he's really inspired me in life. Which therapy was that? Sorry. It's called photodynamic therapy. Photodynamic therapy. Photodynamic. They use um, a, a substance called porphyrin, which we have porphyrin in heme in our blood. Uh, they use a porphyrin. And then what happens is they radiate that area with light and that can destroy tumours. So he was very big in that area of photodynamic therapy. And uh, I was working for him and uh, very, very charismatic. Um, professor he was and then I went on from there 
had an opportunity to do a postdoc with actually one of his former students. She was a professor at, uh, at Cambridge and I did a postdoc for, with her for four years, working in her lab and in, in biosensors. And um, it was that, that was a wonderful experience. Cambridge, if you never get the chance to go to Cambridge, it just is a delightful place. And our group was just wonderful. People from all over the world doing PhDs and postdocs. And um, it was a really nice experience. And then I came back to London, I suppose you say. And in the in meantime, I had a son. I had my, my boy um, while I was doing my postdoc. Came back to London. Was thinking, what career do I really want to go into? I, I like research, but, you know, um, I didn't know whether that was what I wanted to do. I did some teaching for a while at one of the colleges in London and really enjoyed that aspect as well. Um, and um, I worked on an access course for nurses and it was really nice to inspire them. In fact, I've subsequently seen some of them in the, in hospitals and they said, you taught me. And it's really nice <laughs> to see that they've got to where they want to go. But I knew I wanted a career that involved using my research skills using my scientific background and really in the caring industry as well. And my sister was actually a CTA at the time, as a clinical trial administrator working for a company. And she um, said to me, I think this could be an area you'd be really interested in. And you know, if you get your first role in there, it will be really good. And I, I got, managed to get a role as a, I suppose it was a coordinator, um, ringing up a patient about a diabetes study uh, to UCL in London. And that gave me my first um, insight into clinical trials and how they work and how, you know, we've got to tell patients about trials, but in a non-partial non way. And I'd go down to the clinic and I'd talk to the diabetes patients and really thought, this is something I really, really want to get into. And that's essentially how I started in the industry in clinical trials. And I started working as a, a CTA, got my first CTA role. From then, it was just continued up, up, going upwards, really, in the, in the clinical trial industry. And what do you do today? And what I do today is I, um, have, I own my own consultancy, uh, Clinivate Limited. I hire up my services and other people in my company to companies that want clinical project managers or clinical directors or clinical research associates. We um, can provide them or I provide my own expertise. I do some general, genuine consultancy work as well, which is advising companies about setting up, up studies startup risks and things of that nature and equally I set up a training business about five years ago when my father passed away I just I always knew I had so much knowledge I gathered over the years about clinical trials and I knew there was no formal training I never had formal training to be a CRA for example and I just wanted to set something up that people could do and learn the, the business up from the ground upwards because clinical trials are so important in getting drugs out to people that they need need them. And yet we don't have this formalised training in the UK, at least. So that's what I set up a company called CGX Training. And we train people from companies, individuals, hospitals, CROs, to how to do their jobs and how to be fit for purpose and what competencies they need, including the actual role, but equally the communication skills and uh, things of that presentation skills which you need in, in our industry as well. So impressive, <laughs> like fran frantically taking notes. So when I obviously went and most people do this, when you share your journey, it sounds very nice and neat. Was it easy to get into the world of clinical trials? No, 
No, it's not easy at all. And actually, I'll share a story with you. When I started, I got my first role as a CTA after I'd done this role uh, as a coordinator at Diabetes. So that wasn't too bad. But I'd never seen the documents that they use in clinical trials pro you know, properly. I'd never understood it. So as a, you know, as, as a former PhD student and a postdoctoral student, I started looking at documents. Why do they need these documents? What committees do we go to? Why do we need a regulatory authority? And I did all that work. After about six months, I decided that um, I think I'm ready to be CRA because I was working very close with the CRAs and the project managers. And I said, I think I'm ready. I'm going to start applying for CRA roles as this clinical research associate roles. I literally applied for 20 jobs and had, well, I had 20 interviews, I can't remember 20 jobs, and I didn't get 19 of them. And the one before the one I got, which was the 19th interview, I had two um, people interview me. One was good cop, one was bad cop. And it was the worst interview I'd had. Mm. They asked me to do a presentation on being a, what does a CRA mean? And why is a CRA no longer just a monitor? And I did this presentation. I thought it was quite good. That went well. But then there were all these questions. And I just thought, oh, I'm not going to get the job. Came out and really screamed after this interview. Like, oh, my God, this is the worst <laughs> one. 19, and I'm not still not got the job as a CRA. When, the next day I had a 20th interview. When I went in, they said to me, you know, what do you think the role of a CRA is? And I just said, because I've done this presentation, a CRA is no longer just a monitor. She's actually a site manager. She must manage the site. And they looked at each other like, oh, my God, she really understood. <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> my senior role, it was a senior CRA. It wasn't just a junior. And I got the job. And I said to the, to the, to the agency who sent me, even I don't get the job, it was the most wonderful experience I've had because they talked to me on a level. We were just talking like, you know, really close. But that was after 20 interviews. So that journey was a very difficult one. And the reason is, is because, you know, the CRA role, um, so a clinical research associate has to go to the hospital or the sites to, sh to show that this, this study has been conforming to the regulations, SOPs, to their own procedures and processes. And it's, so it's a very detailed job, it involves a lot of scientific knowledge, reviewing a protocol, which are highly medical uh, documents. And yet I wasn't trained in, you know, before I got on this, this role. And I was went out with um, the person I was taking over from. She was a very, very, very good CRA. She was going um, emigrating and she taught me everything. But I know that's not normal. Normally, it's just a handover. So if you don't have that training, how do you become good at your job? The other thing is at universities, we've got hear about careers in clinical research. And so I never knew about it. And everybody I meet and speak to tells me they got into it by accident. And I think that's not the way to do something which is so important. Doctors get trained for five years. Mm -hmm. Dentists do. All other health professionals get trained for such a long time. So why not have a training program for clinical trial associates and, and, and the like in, in the industry. Because people say they get into it by accident, is it diverse or is it the same sort of people? You know, like, is it a, like attracts like or is it quite diverse? Well, in the sense that most people have, will, will be scientists of some degree or have a scientific background. However, you do meet people, I've met um, state agents who were previously in this role so it, it can be diverse. People with you know BA degrees as well. Okay, it can be diverse. The problem is, it tends to be you know sector of people who've just happened to get into it, which is scientists or people working in pharmacies who've come across drugs, 
people working in any pharmaceutical company may, may find it by accident. But it's that kind of thing, or hospitals sometimes. Okay. So you kind of get the similar kind of people. And the people we get on our training courses are from anything from doctors, radiographers, pharmacists, ophthalmologists, all okay. kinds of people want to get into this industry, nurses. And so, you know, it is diverse, but it isn't in a, in a sense. Okay. What has life been like in the clinical research industry in relation to the pandemic? Mm. Very interesting question, because on one hand, it's been very uh, good because people for the first time have understood what we do. My father, God rest his soul, before he died, only just realised what I did when I when I take him to his uh, prostate cancer doctor, because people don't know what we do and that, that this exists. So in that respect, it's been very good. In other respects, it's been, you know, very very bad. As you know, people with certain comorbidities have suffered really a great deal. Ethnic minorities have been at the receiving end of being, you know, more hit compromised and hit by the pandemic in terms of that sort of thing. In terms of trials, we had to stop some trials. We had to limit people coming into the sites. There was more scrutiny in terms of people coming into the units. You know, how do they get um, to see the to, to the to the doctors for that they had to put their negative tests so in a lot of ways it really was burdensome on patients and their families and equally on people who had other illnesses you know needed um, operations their operations had to be put on hold because of this pandemic and one further thing is that with the DNR DNR which is do not resuscitate that used to be something that the families would, I know in my dad's case, we decided whether he was would be resuscitated or not. So during a pandemic, you can't have that because you have to choose the best options, if you like, for society, which is the person who's most likely to survive, unfortunately. And so this was really, you know, it's not so great for families and, and um, you know, traumatic in that respect. Definitely. Are you able to share any of the clinical research projects you're currently working on? I can't share projects, but I would say I've worked in some really fantastic areas in the last few years. So I've worked in rare diseases. Rare diseases affect, you know, a small number of population, but are so debilitating for a lot of people. I was working on an area called RNA silences, which is a really ingenious way of making the DNA, RNA, uh, altering it and reach and to uh, make new healthy, if you like, um, RNA, DNA. That company did, has done very well and successful in getting their drug out. And why that's important is there's people out there who've had this disease uh, for 15 years and been told you, it's in your head, you're making it up, your stomach can't be feeling like that, you know. And so for them to have something that is really, you know, treating them, been incredible. I also worked in a company that makes cannabinoids so those are not the cannabis so the, the active psychosis bit is taken out but well it's not in there and again it's helping children with epilepsy and things of that nature that's really quite profound as well because you know these are babies who can't tell you what's wrong you know that's been really great um, and then another area which I'm really I mean into at the moment is um is in um gene therapy and why gene therapy is really important is because the gene that's defective or mutant is being replaced with a gene that is healthy gene 
and children. I've, I've recently seen um, a patient parent's journey and the patient was two when they had this therapy and now it's 11. And to see that story and see a healthy kid, it really is emotional. It just made me realise this is why I do this job because mm, it, it results like that. So, you know, really exciting things out there. And, and that's just a few of the ones I've worked mm. on lately. And there's others that have been very impactful for me because, as I said, my father had prostate cancer and died of prostate cancer in the end. It's very prevalent in the um, African Caribbean community. And when he was going to see his consultant, who was wonderful, one of the things he said was, you know, he wanted to improve his quality of life. And so my dad, you know, was impressed with that. But equally, I was working on a prostate cancer drug at the time. And that drug um, has now been marketed. And it, it was an oral medication. And so it, it changes lives. So when my dad and his consultant and I were talking about it, my dad was looking at me like, wow, you did something really quite special here. But he didn't know before that time what I did. So I think, you know, those are the personal yeah. things that I have seen um, and there's other things like um, my mother passed away uh, two and a half years ago as well and she died of endometrial cancer and I have and I had and have endometriosis, fibroids, all these Ill, um, different conditions that affect a group of people more than others but there's not much research into them and I would like you know for companies to really start to look at those kind of diseases as well as the more, you know, prevalent ones in society. And, and obviously high, high blood pressure is close to my heart because I, I suffer from high blood pressure myself and my mother did and had a stroke from it. So those are the things that, this is the reason why I do what I do. How long is a typical assignment for you? It can be anything from one year to four or five years. It, it just depends on the company. Nice. You know, because of contract issues and nowadays it tends to be shorter. So they will have a defi- definite drug that they want us to get through to approval. So maybe two or two years maximum or, or up to four years. And how long have you been running your, like the main consultancy? The main consultancy is um, five, five years. I have been speaking to people around the lack of engagement in trying to get people involved in clinical trials or maybe certain parts, certain subsections of the population. Have you ever found that with your projects? Is it hard to get people to want to be involved or actually is it quite easy? It depends on the area. Often there's lots of competition with different studies and how well the PI is known or the um, PI is the principal investigator or what is if he's a good key opinion leader. He's always got to have a very, very good team around him. And normally the research nurses and the coordinators are, are really very important for the study because they do lots of the pre looking at the notes to make sure that their patients meet the criteria. That And then obviously the sponsor has really tried to use ways to engage in recruitment. So we'll often talk to patient advisory groups to find out what kind of things that advisory group, what kind of things that the patients actually need and want and, and whether the trial is feasible from their perspective. So um, it really depends on the sponsors, but there's some trials that are just very, very difficult to recruit for. The other thing I will say in terms of subgroups that you mentioned in the black community in general, there's a lot of scepticism around clinical trials. But dating back to the Tuskegee syphilis 
trial, that's had a lasting effect on people. And lots of my friends that I knew and, you know, well-educated people still feel that, you know, trials are an experiment and that they're using us for guinea pigs. My listeners that may not be aware of that, could you briefly share, give us a little bit more information? This was a trial, um, and I can't remember the year, which involved black men who were had syphilis and they were given a treatment. Well, they were not given any treatment, but they were being studied to see how syphilis was um, affecting them. So eventually they would, would, would die, essentially. And the, uh, the study was conducted within the hospital and the they had a research nurse who was black, who they obviously trusted, who did that experiment, you know, would get, get them to be recruited. They had no informed consent. So they weren't told what they were actually doing. They weren't told that they were given incentives like, you know, meals and things of that nature, which as, as most people know in clinical trials, you can't do that because that would incentivize people who haven't got money. So it broke every ethical standard that we now know today is important that we have ethics and approval for every single trial. And when penicillin became available, which would have been able to treat them, they were still denied treatment. And uh, it's one of the worst cases of um, violating somebody's human rights that I can remember. And when we do the courses, one of the courses, we do talk a lot about this. We ask all the subjects to go and think about, all the delegates to think about, you know, how this would impact. If you think about today, you know, every drug you get, everything you get has got um you know, patient insert with all the side effects. Your doctor will explain everything to you. And these people are left with syphilis, a very nasty condition, and essentially left to die. And um, I think it was 1983, and I might be wrong, but Bill Clinton apologised for the syphilis trial. But I think that scarred a lot of black people. Um, obviously, there's, there's other cases through history. Nuremberg is another one. But th- that, for me, is for the black community, that would be the one that I think really impacts on them. Okay. So kind of switching tact a little bit. So you're the site manager, you're the project manager there, you're the scientist, you're guiding, you're advising, you're leading those engagements, you're doing training. Is it all you or do inside your business, do you have support? So you're the lead, but do you have support or are you doing it all? Oh, no, I'm not saying not doing it all. Um, (laughs) In fact, I have lots of different people in my business. I have, obviously, the financial side is managed by a financial person who happens to be be my husband and legal. That's that's quite quite nice, having him involved in it. And in fact, actually, the business was his idea, not mine. We recently went online when the pandemic hit. We were running courses. Just as we ran our last course, the pandemic happened. So we had to have uh, online courses went from face-to-face to online and we had to build a learning management system. So we've got a technologist involved who's wonderful, who's our partner. We've got a designer, branding, marketing, strategic manager, business manager. I've got salespeople who work for me. I've got an assistant who did um, my scheduling and does the day-to-day stuff. And then I also, in the, in the other business, I've got trainers who train, trainers who write courses, so it's, a, it's, a, it's getting bigger and bigger by the day, actually. And I've got copywriters who write the copy. What I will say, it's really about finding the right people for your business. I've been in this five years and building that business up is really about, I have to feel 
a relationship with somebody, you know, rather than I've, I've had a few wrong mistakes. But generally, the people that I'm working with are so passionate about the business, almost as passionate, if not as passionate as me about right. it. And so, you know, it just makes all the difference in the world. We don't talk about I, it's we, it's a, it's a real team thing. And so that really helped me. I couldn't do this business on my own at all. It would be just too much for one person. Uh, my journey is not a single journey. I want my journey to be about everyone in our team developing and growing. And that's what's happened. In one of my previous podcasts, the guest said, why would anybody care? Why would my team care more than me? And my uh, podcast producer, Sophie, was like, I really care. She, you know, like she st- said to me, Tara, that episode shouldn't go out. You know, like <laughs> she really, she cares and she's very, very passionate about the job. And I think, I think when you get the right mix, when you find the right person, and I think there's also something around you or we learn to be sometimes it's not the other person sometimes as the leader the business owner you're not ready for certain people or certain situations so sometimes we say it's about finding the right it is about finding the right person I've come across people and you know like in the moment you think they're not a right fit and they're not but sometimes now I've reflected I feel like embarrassingly it's like taking well I've had this business for six years, but you know, like I'm no spring chicken. I've line managed people for years. And I'm like, I feel like I've cracked it <laughs> with my currency. It's taken me ages. <laughs> it does take a while. And the reason is, is because one, you've got to understand people's personality, people's motivations. In fact, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. My, my previous sister who's left me to be a medical writer, but I'm so happy for her anyway. Mm. She actually did one of my, tra- two of my training courses and I did that training course simply because she couldn't do the, the week that everybody else was, would, had been rescheduled to. And I trained her. It was just me and her. We became like friends. Like, like It was like a sister relationship. I helped her get, you know, look for jobs. And then she couldn't, she didn't get a job. And I said, you know what, do you want to come and work for me? She's written courses for me. She's a wonderful um, young lady, a lot younger than me, different culture from me, but we just gelled like sisters. Um, and I think and we're still friends to this day. And I think it's really important for me. I like people to be people that I feel in, you know, have my best interest, but equally I have their best interest. Mm. And actually, when I lead, I say to these people, people don't understand what I mean. I lead from from the back, and I don't, that, what that means is that you should be able to help people to grow in themselves, but equally you're growing as well. But you don't need to be on people saying to them, you know, are you doing this now? When are you doing this? What time? Because they don't need that support. What they need is for you to feel that they have the ability and then that that makes them fly. So, you know, she really grew in that role um, as my assistant. And we did lots of different things together, open days together, and we we co-led them. And I really grew from that relationship. So I, I always believe that every relationship is a is a development. And, and that's why it takes a long time to be able to become good at it. Because you get you do get some people who, who do fool you sometimes and then you start working and you think, oh, this is really not what I want or, or that we've got on different levels or different pages, you know. Definitely. Do you think, and this is like, it's a genuine, it's a question really that's just for me, <laughs> where you mentioned you have to feel like you've got a real connection with people. Do you think you can truly grow and scale your business 
when you're looking for that deep connection and you described uh, your assistant being like a sister, can we grow our businesses like that? Or does there come a point where it's just like, you've got the skills, this is the culture, I think you'd be a fit versus I feel like we could be friends. I think it's not always important perhaps to be friends, but I do think there has to be a synergy. And I think, you know, I've seen through big companies, I've worked for big companies and small, like some big companies got it just right where there is this feeling, um, I don't know if I can mention certain companies I work for, but there's one particular company I've worked for in the last five, six You can always mention, if you're talking about them positively, of course you can mention them. <laughs> I worked for Takeda. I, I've worked for a few others. I've also had a good feel, Takeda, Al Nylum, lots of good ones like that, where we've become friends. I've, I, most people there I go on holiday with all year long, and they've got their big companies, but they've got the feel right where people can connect on a level. And, you know, especially in Takeda, where it's in London, you know, we all would go out after work and it was a really social place. So you can get it right, but there has to be that human connection. They would do things like fruit fruit for everybody, for all the employers. They would celebrate a lot of things throughout the year. It wasn't just lip service and saying to people, you know, well done, thank you. It really was genuinely, you you join and they would have like three or four um, occasions to introduce you to the team. Even though I was a contractor, I still felt that. That is a mark of a really good organisation when you're a contractor, but you feel part of the team. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's important for me. So, you know, um, whereas I've been in other companies where they've actually marked you out as you sit right at the far end and you are a contractor. And that's, you know, to me, especially with clinical trials where you're working in functional teams, we all got to, and we are responsible as project managers of coordinating and facilitating that team it doesn't work as well. So I do think you can grow your business that way. And I, I'm always inspired by Richard Branson. I follow him and he writes about his success, but it's always about family, friends and people that he's helped them on his journey, but they've equally helped him. And I think it's really important that we learn that as leaders. We're not there to say, you know, have our way. It's there to assist people and take people on the journey so when somebody leaves me to go and do like my assistant medical writing I'm like wow that's fantastic you know I've helped her to get to that next level I don't I don't feel sad I feel feel sad that I lost you feel sad yeah when I say this it's not like you give to receive but it's what goes around comes around and and it comes around it's not like for like but it's like you've done something good you will get the good back in whatever way that looks like that's right yeah exactly and that's how I felt about you know losing Sabrina um was that that she actually was going on to something better but equally I'd I'd help facilitate that if I hadn't given her that chance in the first place no experience didn't have like you know anything didn't know lots of things I, she wouldn't I wouldn't be she wouldn't be there and I wouldn't be here yeah. so it, you know it definitely is about that I saw something on social media it might have been today and it had when your employee resigns why make them the enemy people don't leave the organization they leave the leader sometimes it's time to move on and that's okay and as the employer help people move on in a good way and the karma will be that you'll be able to recruit somebody in a good way you don't want too much in, out, in, out, but sometimes you do need people to leave and then the next person comes in and it's 
Yeah. And also, you know, like, you know, judging by, I mean, there's the two things that you mentioned. One of them is because you want the person to go on and do be successful in their, in their life. Yeah. If they're leaving too soon, I do agree. It can often be about the management is not right, you know, if, if it's like that. But equally, my industry is so close. You know, you leave one job today. You don't know who's going to be your director the next job. It literally is like that. Every job I've gone to, I've always known somebody who's... who's You're like, oh, hi. <laughs> ring me up sometimes and say, oh, what, what was that um, place like? Can you tell me um, how, you know, what it's going to be like there or, or whatever? So it's a real closed industry. So you've got to be good at what you do because that's what, that's what gets around. People know you just by the fact that you're good at what you do. But equally, you've got to be a good person. You know, um, you should want people to be successful successful in whatever they do you should want to see their growth if you haven't got the capacity to grow them then let yeah. them go elsewhere and get the growth set them free yeah and let them, yeah i mean you know you got to where you are because of other people so helping you so therefore let them get to where they and they want to be and also you know i got a wonderful assistant through my through my son who's at um st george's and uh, she's wonderful you know so it, it just it just does, you know, you, you'll get, you'll attract the right people. So before we end this interview, it would be nice to just quickly touch on with the pandemic and where we find ourselves and getting drugs out to the community, to the right people. Could you talk a little bit about, did you mean the vaccine or did you mean wider drugs? I think I mean both. Um, okay. In terms of the vaccines, it's making sure, because I don't think that we will just have these two vaccines and that will be it. I think we'll have to have top-ups throughout the course now going forwards, making sure that even young people get, you know, have the ability to be vaccinated soon as well. That's really important. And research into pandemics should continue like never before. In fact, I think the government has said that they're putting so much investment into making the UK a centre of excellent for clinical research, which is wonderful for my ears, but equally not just about diseases like that but equally about diseases like you know the rare diseases I've mentioned or diseases like Parkinson's Alzheimer's I know Biogen I used to work with Biogen at one point they've now had a breakthrough with one of their drugs aducanumab which is a wonderful thing because it started off looking not promising at all and now is really promising for Alzheimer's Parkinson's another one my father-in-law passed away from Parkinson's these are the kind of diseases that I want to see drugs getting getting out there but we can only get drugs out there if we run clinical trials to the ensure patient safety and well-being that data is credible data and that we ensure that all everything we do within clinical trials is according to the regulations and and uh, that's the only way we can do it and training is a big part of that for me you mentioned you've got some health challenges you're growing this business it seems like you're just going to get busier and busier because the need is there. How do you safeguard your own mental health and your own physical health and well-being? I'm so glad you said that. So I've had to take a step back from some of my contracts because of my health, my high blood pressure in particular. My mother passed, well, she had two strokes. One when she was my age, a TI, which is a trans-ischemic attack, a mini stroke, and then she had a stroke at 70. So I'm very aware of that and because of high blood pressure. I've had three doctor, different doctors who I'm working with to ensure that I rest, because I don't rest easily. That's one of my big problems, that I take my medications, which I do. I exercise and I eat very food 
very good food, low salt and things of that nature. So that's one thing I'm doing to address that. Also, I'm delegating a lot more. So if you've got a good team, you can delegate to people who you trust to do a lot of the jobs. I mentioned my husband is um, in the business, so a lot of that that I don't have to do. And I'm, you know, I've got a very good assistants and partners that I work with who can take on lots of things. And another thing I've done to, to um, enhance my health is have a life coach who yes. is wonderful. She really is. I mean, Lorraine is my life coach and uh, she tells me off because I, 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 I think <laughs> that I'm, I'm doing nothing when I'm baking cakes and uh, I'm doing things. Like she said, that's what you're doing something, Lee, you're not resting. But I find rest is a word that doesn't sit with me very well. It's one of those things that I think I feel rest is lazy so I'm trying she's trying to help me to and she has helped me incredibly yeah. and uh, and also the other thing I do is um I love people I like I'm a very social person so I spend a lot of time doing um with my friends I've got a walking group that I started I should say that oh. where we walk every Saturday in one of the parks in London and um, that's growing as well I'm doing other networking activities to just do things that are not related necessarily to my job. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? So they can find us on our website, which is www.cgxtraining.com. They can also find me on LinkedIn, Leah um, Hunter. And there um, is various other ways they can get information for the website and, and linking with me. They can do a calendar with me. So if they want to talk about clinical trials um, and how to get into the industry, they can go onto the, our, our website and book a session with myself or with one of our trainers. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tara. I really appreciate it. so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do it's really really funny you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.